Okay, we should probably have a go. It is the second Sunday in Lent, and uh, here's the classic one-year text. Come on in, come on in. It's always more. The gospel's always more. The Lord has opened my ear to hear, as those who are taught, I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. So fascinating uh, little text there, good Lutheran text. The Lord opens my ear, or, um, O oh Lord, open my lips, we sing in matins. The Lord always does the first thing. The only reason you can speak about God is because he opens your lips. And the only reason you can hear him is because he opens your ears. So that's part of what we'll have to engage today as we uh, look at the first word from the cross. But here we are, second week in Lent. So let's pray and then we'll have a go. O Lord Jesus Christ, who walked the way of the cross as the obedient servant of God, open our hearts, we beg, and teach us by your Spirit that we may not rebel, but walk in obedience of disciples who have learned of you, who with the Father and the Son lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. Nice thing. Um, gosh, so many things. I feel like I haven't, I haven't been around about for a while. Um, Kirby, I don't know if that's the right thing. Here's the, do you need this? Yeah, you're looking for that. Oh, the hearing thing. Okay. <clears throat> That's the sign. That's the mark to speak up, I think. Um, but this is such an odd text to be speaking up loudly about. A couple of things. Um, uh, just, you know, I got so many little things. I feel like I've been with you for so long. Thanks for last week and the generosity of the past week. It was uh, very good in so many ways. And it was very good once again to hear from many of you. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of work to do, uh, but this is the place to be doing it. So I'm, I'm very grateful for uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, here we are in Lent, and it's, uh, uh, you know, what is it that we do with that? Uh, in, in some sense, I wonder if it wouldn't be good for us if we just all sat quietly for six weeks, for 45 minutes. Um, I wonder about you. You know, I wonder about myself. I wonder when the last time that we engaged uh, what the church is classically known as meditation, you know, just the quietness of uh, engaging the Christ and the cross. And I, I tried to give you that a bit last week when I said um, perhaps the next few weeks could be, you know, I'm, I'm um, you know, by now you know about me. I'm a fixer and an over-explainer and a, and a let's-get-going uh, person. And, and sometimes that runs against uh, what is classically known in the church as, uh, you know, just sort of silence before the cross. So, so in some sense, uh, you know, I, I wondered if that wouldn't be, been best. But I didn't know if we could all, you know, sort of uh, cut our thumbs and rub them together and make the promise. My great fear was that um, you would think perhaps that nothing was being done when, in fact, everything was being done. So I, so I sort of cancel that idea, but I do, want to, I, I do want to work with the idea that perhaps it would be good for us just to engage rather quietly, and maybe on a level that's not utterly intellectual, but in some ways perhaps mysterious, what it is for Jesus to speak his last seven words. <clears throat> I, um, I have all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, one is... Um, I think it would help our life together. I think sometimes um, we, 
well, you, you know this from your own lives. Whatever problem or challenge you're engaging, that's what you're engaging. And you cannot go beyond it unless you are willing to address it and, and move on. And I sometimes feel like in churches, uh, what happens is the people uh, come to a particular point of comfort or at least get viableness. And, uh, you know, they, they, they stall a bit. And that's not always the best thing for the church. And so the church has to ask, how is it that we can get past that? Um, I'm also, I've also noticed, um, as I, maybe I've just grown older, um, uh, or maybe just, you know, uh, paying more attention in a way that when you're younger you don't pay attention. I've also um, learned or um, observed how often we all need to be managed. And I, there's, a, there's a positive way to put that and a negative way to put it. The negative way is that I think um, even in the church today, uh, an honest word is often considered an evil word. And I just put it like that. You just sort of hold that. Um, that an honest word is often considered an evil word. That is, uh, there's a bit, of, a bit of that in the sermon in the text for last week, but an honest word um, often pains us and then that's often considered an evil word. Um, in the church, the cross is the most honest word. That's all there is. So, um, you know, we need to get to a point in the church where we can hear what is honest and knowing it's true, welcome it as the path to the next thing. Fascinating stuff. And it is also fascinating for churches that celebrate uh, a service of the seven last words on Good Friday, that with this very first word, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, the gospel read with it is the gospel of the prodigal son. Because that is an honest word that takes the veneer off things, that, that, that relieves the notion of people having to be managed. It is a word that presents the challenge in the starkest possible terms and then moves people beyond it. It's fascinating stuff. So I wonder then um, if, we couldn't, if we couldn't just engage these and see what they might do to us. Now, you know, how to engage you know, how to engage is, is the question. So, I, you know, rather, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm big for tying things up. You know, my, my PhD is in systematic theology, but remembering that the first thing that the Lord did was create order, which, of course, is a good reason for your children to clean their rooms, you know. When the Lord saw that the world was tohu wabohu, formless and void, uh, he authored order as a blessing. So I, you know, I, I learn, I, I, I sort of nod to that, and, and, and I lean toward it. But there are days when uh, that's not always best. So perhaps in the next days, or if it's not best, that's not the fairest thing to say. It's not that it's not always best. It's that there are other ways of knowing. So um, I've, 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 I've hoped that perhaps in these next few weeks we could engage some other ways of knowing. And of course, some of the great ways, other ways of knowing are um, poetry and art 
and uh, reflection on questions that don't have easy answers or perhaps answers at all. So, you know, here we are, uh, the first word. And now some of you have asked, and I, you know, I just, this is how the church works, it's a funny thing. You know, you, you thought that because it was the seven last words from the cross, there ought to be seven words. You see, of course, there's, there's no mystery in that. It is, of course, the last seven things that the Lord said. But, you know, the, some Gospels record some of them, some Gospels others. Um, people throughout the centuries have tried to put them all together. You know, whether, uh, you know, which order they come in, precisely how it works, is not the great concern. The great concern is, with these seven last things the Lord has said, he gives us insight into what the world is like and our place there. So the first word um, is this Luke, chap- uh, this Luke verse, you know, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, which is, uh, on several levels, absolutely positively true. Um, I've, I've been reading uh, a lot of stuff uh, on these last words. They're fertile ground for meditation. Um, two things I particularly have nodded toward, and I tell you this because I, I have borrowed thoroughly from, from a couple of different sources, but there are, in fact, people who disagree. But in your own, um, disagree in some things, don't have the, the same take. And then, of course, I have my own take on it, too, but I like to be guided by people smarter than me. It's the, great, it's the great, greatest joy. So I give, you two, uh, I give you two recent books. One is uh, just come out, Stanley Hauerwas, who, by consensus, uh, is perhaps the greatest American ethicist uh, He's a professor at Duke, uh, Yale PhD, brilliant guy. The title uh, and the poem, which comes first, Cross Shattered Christ, is one bit. Um, the other is um, Death on a Friday Afternoon by John, Richard John Newhouse, who many of you know, uh, grew up as a Lutheran, Missouri Senate Lutheran, has now um, gone the way of Rome, but nevertheless is uh, a solid, thoughtful, brilliant, and... Um, practical commentator on the world at large. And these, these two things do not necessarily agree, uh, but they are fascinating. I've been reading some other stuff by the Archbishop of Canterbury and um, by Bonhoeffer, but I'll bring you those as they become perhaps more relevant. But, uh, you know, here we are. Unholy we sang this morning and prayed as if we were not broken. Crooked, the Christ figure hung, splayed on bloody beams above us. Devious God, Dweller in the shadows, mercy on us, immortal cross-shattered Christ, your gentling grace down upon us. So you can sort of, uh, you know, read through that a dozen times or memorize it. You know, the shocking thing about poetry is it goes, it would say a thing that a pastor would never dare, a devious God. But you, you have to figure out if you can read devious in a gospel way, which shouldn't be so horribly difficult when the end is uh, grace upon you. So I, I don't know that I'll read this first long bit from uh, Power Wasp, but I wanted to give you a taste at least uh, of, of the mystery. You know, that mystery doesn't mean uh, we just sort of punt because we're less than intellectual. Mystery recognizes that God's limits are not our limits. And that what happens on the cross is frankly beyond us. And that is contained in the first word. So, uh, to say that what Christians believe is mysterious invites the assumption that what we believe is not believable. 
In short, mystery suggests that what we believe defies reason and common sense. What we believe does defy reason and common sense. But yet I believe what Christians believe is the most reasonable and common sense account of the way things are. And that, you see, is what you're chasing. If you have a brain in your head or a beat in your heart, what you're chasing is the way things are. So um, the question is, and he talks next about your past uh, and your future and your present, but the past has been corrupted and the future is anticipated and the present is redeemed but only because of what happens on the cross. And so then the second point is, um, what could it mean possibly for the Son of God to die? At the very least, it means there is a breach. There is some brokenness that is unrepaired. And I think the question before you then is, after such a separation, Reconciliation is not easy. In fact, um, it's all but impossible. You know this about your own lives. You know this about your friends. You know this about children, about parents. You know that when there is a breach, we're not particularly good at reconciliation. But there is this uh, great line from the Newhouse book where he says, the truth about the crucified Lord is the truth about us. And life is just about that simple. So, the father sacrifices his son on the cross. And we regularly try to understand that as like other deaths that we experience. And when we do that, we diminish Jesus. He becomes something like us and something other than God. Uh, That is wholly wrong. The death of Jesus is a one-off experience. There is no other thing that can be compared with it because there is no other point at which the Lord engages us and our faith so intimately. So Jesus, and this is at the bottom of point three there, is engaged in a death that encompasses death. Here, it's very important for you to understand that reconciliation does not mean that he is making peace with evil. That is completely not the point. He is, in fact, making peace but not in a way that can coexist with evil. So the question for you would be, then, whether you are able to think in a way that is new and different and not bit by bit. So evil will have its way, and the Lord will have his, and they'll sort of coexist, and we'll just carry on. You see, that's 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 one of the points I'm talking about, where we think... Uh, whatever challenge lies before you, you cannot rise above it. So if you accept the challenge that you can live in a world and your life can be some, part, some, some way partly tainted, you, you live in a world that is not the Lord's. 
The Lord um, will not have detente with evil nor with death. And so to be in the church is to understand that in some way your life is always abnormal. And you see, that, that's one of the things I fear about us, that we are not engaging that abnormalcy to its full extent. That we become too comfortable, too like those around us who know not Christ. Too much in the way of those who have no sense what the cross is about. When we're meant to be precisely the opposite. And perhaps, you know, just perhaps, this first word could cure us of that. So I'm at point five then. What I would like to do first is try to remind you that this first word is not about you. You, This is an embarrassingly intimate conversation between the Father and the Son. Now, it will eventually have some effect for you, but you are not at point number one. If you think about what happens on the cross, first and foremost, as something about you, you haven't got it. The gospel is never first and foremost about you. This is in the most practical terms. You know, you don't come to church so that you get what you want. That is the great heresy of American religion. You don't come to church so you get what you want. You come to church so God gets what he wants. It's all there in the first word. It's not about us. You know, it's about the Lord who sees the breach and will try to fix it. So the first word of the first word is Father, where the second person of the Trinity very intimately addresses the first person. And you are allowed to glimpse the mystery or the inner workings of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Lutherans, we don't pay a particular amount of attention to uh, Trinity theory, as uh, often uh, denominations more given to philosophy do. We prefer and think it most true that we see the Trinity most clearly through the Son and his engagement with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So here we are, then, at 2 Corinthians 5.19. And if you have a Bible, it'd be nice to spin to that, perhaps. You'll notice that I, I haven't given you long bits to be reading. What I'm trying to do is give you a few bits that you might take home and ponder uh, what it all might mean. This is, this is a brilliant bit in 2 Corinthians 5. Really, 16 to 21 is some of the best stuff going in the scriptures. And you remember that, that, that Paul play, uh, played Trump in, in 1 Corinthians, where he says, you know, we're fools who determined to know nothing but the cross of Christ. You sort of ask yourself about the church in America and in the world, as if we're still fools that prefer to know nothing but the cross of Christ, or if we're some other sort of person persons, people, given to something else. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Christ, in Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The first bit first. 
God reconciles the world to himself. See, in Christ. The result of that is that your trespasses aren't counted against you. And beyond that, there is church to whom the message of reconciliation is entrusted. But the first word, the first thing in the first word, is that God is reconciling the world to himself. That he acts because he wants his creation back. Um, For some people, this seems to be uh, a horribly vulgar way of proceeding. And they cannot understand a father who would demand the death of his son. Now, you can sort of hold that out there, uh, certainly as bitterness and pain, but it is anything but vulgar. Um, You have this in your own experience, and when it happens, you understand. You understand it in a, at a level at which you cannot even explain it. Once a month in Chicago, some poor mother runs up the stairs into a burning building because her two kids are left up there to get them out. Or perhaps my um, you know, clearest and favorite story about this um, was about the sportscaster Tom Meese, you guys who watched ESPN in its earliest days. I think he was the first... ESPN guy. Uh, I came across the story of his death a few years ago. And it, later, uh, the initial stories were, were pulled back, or the, the edges were shaved off them. Um, and then they sort of threw up their hands and said, you know, we don't know if this is quite what happened. But I'm going to tell you the story it was a, as it was originally reported. And then, you know, if they shave the edges, the story still stands. Mies uh, comes to his next door neighbor's swimming pool one day. Uh, and sees his two-year-old on the bottom. He can't swim. He turns to his nine-year-old and says, go call 911. When, they, uh, when the police and the ambulance arrive, his two-year-old is sitting on the edge of the pool, and Mies is on the bottom of the pool dead. That, my friends, is atonement. If you understand that story, then you understand the cross. And if you watch the news and understand that, you understand the cross. So it is uh, an intimate thing, not a vulgar thing. God must die. It is a lie so monstrous that to suggest it invites instant annihilation, except that God accepts the verdict. A God so strong that he would die. Our disordered order is shattered so that things might be restored. He dies, and it is in some very real sense his fault, not ours. It is his fault. You need to understand this now. I'm not at the point of sweeping generalization, which can kind of hold up. What I put before you things that you might consider and then see how far they are true. The Lord dies, and it's his fault for being good. 
It is his fault because he engages it. He chooses this death as restoration, as reconciliation. There is a conversation between the father and the son that says something like, beauty has been broken, and what shall we do? And there is a moment where the father says to the son, would you? And the the son replies, of course. But that is decision within the Trinity for your good. The outcome of that is atonement. And the gift of atonement is forgiveness. Forgiveness is when that mystery of the Trinity, what the Father and Son worked out intimately and together in love with the Holy Spirit, is put to the cross and then delivered to you. So what's most important for you when you think about forgiveness is not to think that it is about forgetting. Maybe no greater heresy than forgive and forget. At least the way that, in the way that we slur the words together as if one was uh, concomitant with the other. It is not about an ignoring. It is not about moving on. It is not about excuses. It is not a wink and a nod. Could he have done it another way? He he can do anything. But, But should he have done it another way? That's the question. And the answer is no. Could he have done it another way? Yes, he could. Should he have done it another way? No. No, he should not. Why? Because if he does it another way that does not cost and acts as if your sins do not matter, then you don't matter either. If it doesn't cost, you don't matter. Good doesn't matter. And evil has no force. But you know, deep in your hearts, that bad things do matter. And if bad things matter, good things also matter. We know that because we have all experienced guilt and shame and empathy and outrage and pain and yearning for justice. So in the cross, what you are meant to see is that good matters and that evil also matters and that you matter. Or you might say that good costs and you cost as well. And so then, you know, I give you probably my two uh, favorite lines I've ever heard about the forgiveness of sins. To understand this, you have to remember that it's not first about you, that forgiveness is God's exercise. So he takes away your sins, and the only way that your sins can hurt you is if you take them back. 
This is how freeing that is for you. There's no longer wondering about if your confession was good enough or if you named them all or if your heart was just right or whether they'll come back to get you. If all of that is talk about you. If you could just for a moment uh, move beyond that challenge of thinking about yourself first and think about what the Lord is up to on the cross. He takes away your sins. He, he literally, physically, flesh and blood on the cross in the darkness against death pulls your sins out of you. And the only way that they can hurt you is if you steal them back. You have to pull your sins back for them to hurt you. This is why, this is why the gospel is, is the great passiveness of receiving the gift. He pulls them away, and now, if you will do what the Lord says to do, abide in me, stay put. You know, bloom where I put you. You know, that, that's forgiveness of sins. There isn't anything you can protect against the Lord, and he's not really your enemy, unless you insist on treating him as your enemy. We're so um, fond of the gospel for today, John 3.16, that that 3.17 almost gets lost. That the reason there was a John 3.16 was a John 3.17. It's great stuff. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Sure, that's a bit of it. For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. His intent is to use the cross to fix the breach, to bring you home. So all of that has to be said before anything is said about you. All of that is said before anything is said about you. It's the Father and the Son who desperately wants you back and will find a way to do that without relying on you or me. With this forgiveness that comes to us, we are drawn into the mystery of the Trinity. We are told what sort of salvation is needed, or if you will, what it will take to fix the breach to restore us to the sort of people that we were meant to be, to save the likes of us. The only sort that will do that, that will do it in a way that will make clear to you that forgiveness is not a matter of avoiding or excusing or fleeing or winking or nodding, is a gruesome sort of death, the sort of thing that even those most polluted and broken can still understand. We're told who we are by nature, those who have lost our way. We're told about our present, that the Lord insists on giving us his goods. And the only way that we can live without his goods is if we flee them, avoid them, scorn them. And we are then told about our future. That once redeemed, we're members of a kingdom governed by forgiveness and redemption. As Newhouse puts it so well, that we are willing to wash the feet 
of those on the night that they would abandon us. That then goes to my initial comments about the veneer of Christianity or the need to ever and always be managing each other. Uh, with my confessor this week, you know, great joy, uh, one of the things he said was, uh, when you no longer have illusions about colleagues or family or friends, then you can love them most thoroughly. Brilliant stuff. So Jesus to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. No illusions about to whom that is being said. Uh, today he'll wash their feet. Tomorrow he will die for them. And that will be the most thorough love. Every human life conceived from eternity and destined to eternity, here finds its story told. In this killing that some cause senseless, we are brought to our senses. Here we find out who we most truly are, because here is the one who we are called to be, the derelict, that is Christ's derelict on the cross. The derelict cries, come follow me. Follow him there. We recoil, we close our ears, we hurry on to Easter. But we will not know what to do with Easter's light if we shun the friendship of the darkness that is wisdom's way to light. Darkness there being the three hours of darkness on the cross, not the darkness of evil, but the darkness of the cross, where all evil is piled on the Lord. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5.21 is just the next verse beyond what I gave you there. For our sake, <clears throat> he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You remember once or twice in early sermons here, I posed for you the question of who is the greatest sinner that ever lived? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. One of my saddest uh, points at St. John was then a family who transferred out after such a sermon and, and spoke this as the reason why. That no one would talk about their Jesus in that way. Paul talks that way. And the father talks about his son that way that Jesus Christ is the biggest sinner that ever lived. It's not even Jesus is sin. The text says, for our sake, he made him be sin. It's fascinating emphasis. But Jesus is the biggest sinner that ever lived. If he's not, then you'll be answering on your own. On the final day, if there's any sins you've got left to stick into you, you'll have to answer for those on your own. If he's not the biggest sinner, if he hasn't absorbed, drawn out, you know, pulled in every last sin from every last one of us, if he hasn't done that, then you are done for and the cross was a waste. 
Jesus is the biggest sinner who ever lived. So then, uh, Newhouse brilliantly quoting, uh, uh, twisting a, a phrase from Alfred North Whitehead, um, the last great cosmologist of the last century. Uh, the only joy to be trusted is the joy on the far side of a broken heart. Yes. The only joy to be trusted is the Easter joy that is beyond Good Friday. So often when people are choosing, they take Easter over Friday. In fact, you know, the book came out a few years ago with the horrible, horrible title about leaving uh, your Good Fridays behind and moving on to your Easter's. This is, you know, nothing could be more theologically empty. It's not a wink and a nod on to Easter. We're sort of with our eyes averted. You just can't quite bear to look up. No, it is the path to Easter is through Good Friday. There is only an Easter because on the cross, the Father damns the Son. That together they collude, conspire to save you. And they do it in a way that takes a death to let you know what evil costs and to remind you what you're worth. And that only happens on the far side of a broken heart. On the day of the seven last words, the gospel appointed is the gospel of the prodigal son. So there is the one who's lost his way and lost himself and lost his story and his family and his place. This is your story. He asked for all that he could get so that there would be no restraints on his life. And his father, with a broken heart, gave him what he asked for. And he came to his senses. That's how the text says it. He came to his senses, or he came to himself. But he realized that it was only through his father's act that he would be restored. So you remember that as he came home, his father comes running. And he'd worked up a pretty good excuse that he didn't need to be a son anymore. He could just be a servant. And the father refused to hear anything less than a full forgiveness. No wink, you know, no nod, no forgiving and forgetting, no ignoring the facts. What he did is took a son who smelled like swine, and the father cleaned him up, and the father dressed him, and the father gave him gifts. And the father, in the midst of all those who knew he'd been betrayed by someone who was as intimate as could be, the father puts the ring on his finger, public sign of reconciliation. He's back. And then the feast begins. So that is a story of dignity betrayed and dignity restored. 
And that, you see, is meant to be your story and mine. That's the story of Lent. So you might just muse on all of that, that first word, and then uh, see what comes next. But if you could hold that for a while, um, the depth to which the Lord came to save you, and how it is always his act and not yours, and how that act is thorough, and in bringing you back, he gives you his story, and he gives you himself, and he gives you his family, and he gives you his place. And you're back, and all is well. And that's what the church is meant to be. So next week, uh, we'll have another go. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much. See you next week.